This episode of Modern Bonsai is brought to you by the Bonsai Dojo. The Bonsai Dojo is Bonsai N's new online bonsai course platform where you can learn bonsai in a structured environment. We currently have our first course available, which is our Bonsai Beginners course with over four hours of lessons. If you want the most solid start to bonsai, head to www.thebonsaidojo.com to enjoy two free lessons and enter code PODCAST at checkout for 10% off the full course. Modern Bonsai listeners, welcome back to the podcast. Today I had the honour of sitting down with bonsai expert David Easterbrook, who was the force behind the Montreal Bonsai and Penjing collection, and continues to pave a path with his bonsai videos on TikTok, YouTube and Instagram. David shares with us some of his thoughts and experiences in bonsai, so sit back, relax and enjoy. So for today's guest, we have David Easterbrook with us, which is uh, quite a huge honor for everything that David's done in his bonsai career. But for those that are probably just discovering David right now for the first time through this podcast, um, did you just want to tell us a little bit about your career in bonsai up until this point? And then we'll go a bit deeper into some of those points, because I know that your career in bonsai up until this point has been quite expansive so um, we'll kind of jump into a, a few of those more nuanced points as we go right well actually i started doing bonsai when i was 19 years old um i came about it upon it um due to my mother she had visited a bonsai exhibition at the golden gate park in california and brought me back a book on bonsai which inspired me although no one in Montreal was doing bonsai. So inspired by the book, I ordered tools from Japan and started growing local trees. And uh, finally, about 10 years later, started taking classes with a, an American expert named Jerry Stoll. Uh, visited him in Stockton, New Jersey, took classes with him. Um, then I went to Japan. And first of all, I did one trip and visited it. And then Lynn Perry got me a, an 11 month apprenticeship um, with Fuyuan Nursery. It was the Shinkai brothers that, um, that were running it at the time. It was a commercial nursery, okay, uh, in Nagoya. And then when I came back, I was offered a job at Montreal Botanical Garden. And I actually worked there for 30 years. Uh, I was the curator of the bonsai collection until about 10 years ago when I retired. And since then have, during the whole time, I've been actually working in relative anonymity. Um, but I have many, I taught throughout the Northeast coast of North America, um, here in Quebec, but I had many students and a study group in Vermont New Jersey, uh, New York, um, all down the Northeast coast. And um, I also taught at um, many symposiums uh, for many bonsai clubs. Uh, I was a 
I, I have taught in Europe and in Costa Rica. And since then, since my retirement, I've just kept on with the same thing. I actually have about 500 bonsai at home, which I still care for every day. And I do travel, mind you, with this pandemic on, it's been two years that I haven't crossed the border into the United States. But people here in Canada have made up for it. Uh, I've traveled to out west, out to Western Canada to teach. And I have many private clients and students here in Quebec. Um, what I do is I'll travel to their homes and work on their collections in the, in the fall or at this time of year, pruning and wiring and in the spring repotting. Um, so aside from looking after my own collection and teaching here in Montreal, um, I've been doing a Zoom every month in French for our local bonsai society. Um, all, in fact, all the teaching I do here in Quebec is in French. Um, and uh, I've been doing Zooms for various other bonsai clubs um, in Canada and United States. Um, so it's a very interesting, it's a new phenomenon for me, um, being able to teach um, over social media. I was not familiar with it, but lately it's my youngest son who uh, has encouraged me to teach online. And I've become, um, uh, I guess he tells me, quite well known because of that. Yeah, and I, I think that's a, a great thing because later on we'll go in and we'll start unpacking, you know, some of the social media aspects of bonsai these days. Um, but if I can, I'd like to go back. Um, you mentioned that you spent 11 months in Japan. Um, yes. At, at that time that you were in, in Japan and working in that commercial nursery, what yes. was what was some of the things that you were doing in that commercial nursery? Was it more or less um, growing the material for bonsai, or were you looking after, um, well, apprenticing on clients' trees with things like wiring and pruning, watering, all that kind of stuff? No, it was actually a commercial nursery, and oddly enough, it was a strange combination. They grew mostly Japanese black pines, kuromats, and uh, apples. He made ingo. Uh, by the thousands. So we would be pruning, wiring, and getting ready to ship them overseas, but not really to Europe. Almost all of them went to China at the time. Um, and so it was, it was a very large-scale production, I would say. It wasn't uh, fine-tuning trees at all. Yeah, okay. And then after that, you said you, that you came back and then you spent 30 years at the Botanical Gardens in Montreal the 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 collection there was that all canadian trees or was that a mixture of canadian trees and trees brought in from the us no um actually um in 1980 there was a uh an international flower show in montreal uh called Les Floridies, and the japanese sent bonsai from japan and even at that time um Shanghai Botanic Garden uh, sent a couple of hundred Tianjin from China. And um, after the show, uh, 
you know, the collection had been enlarged drastically, so they really needed somebody to care for them. There was a Korean fellow that uh, was doing it part time, but he was also uh, caring for the orchid collection and he was overwhelmed. So I was asked to, in the beginning, just give him a helping hand in summers. And after two years, uh, took over the collection and expanded it. Um, it was my idea to ask uh, Wu Yi Sun, a Hong Kong banker, to donate part of his pension collection to the Montreal Botanical Garden. And uh, I organized a, an international bonsai convention in Montreal in 1988. And um, the Japanese uh, sent a delegation and we persuaded uh, the Japanese to give us an official collection in 1988. And then in 1997, we opened a North American bonsai uh, collection. And uh, I was very friendly with a bonsai, an American bonsai artist named Nick Lenz. And uh, Nick and I were very good friends. So he donated a part of his collection to the Montreal Botanical Garden, to the North American collection. I donated uh, part of my collection and we acquired some other North American trees. So that was the beginning of a North American collection. I also had a, um, um, a Vietnamese uh, student who was uh, originally a boat person and he was so happy to have been accepted as an immigrant to Canada that he was importing some very, very um, high quality Vietnamese bonsai and he donated 30 of them to the Montreal Botanical Garden also. Um, and so the collection has been building up. The Bonsai Society in Montreal donated many trees, very fine quality trees uh, done during demonstrations by uh, international and American and Canadian experts. Uh, some of our members that had very good collections uh, passed away and donated part of their collections to the botanical gardens. So now um, we're a little bit in a conundrum because we actually at the botanical gardens, I think have too many trees. So um, they, they, they just don't have enough personnel to care for all of them. Yeah, well, it sounds like in the early days, at least that collection rose to a high, high quality very quickly having you know, trees coming from Japan and penjing coming from China and even the stuff coming in from Vietnam. I've seen the trees in Vietnam and they're just phenomenal. I mean, some of them are, are so big that I've seen that they can't get them into the actual the gardens. They have to sit out in the car park and be displayed because they can't physically get them into the establishment to display them. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, also... Um, we have a retail shop here in Australia called Bonsai N, and um, we've been finding that the Vietnamese have been uh, making a lot of pottery, and yes. some of it is really, really high quality, like beautiful pottery, um, fantastic for bonsai. But I noticed that you said that, you know, at the moment the, the collection's growing so large that they kind of can't keep on top of it. Um, you know, that, that's kind of the thing with bonsai, isn't it? That collections grow so big and it seems like such a, such a fantastic thing until spring rolls around and then it's like, now what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, 
um, in Montreal at the Montreal Botanical Garden, because of the union, we're not allowed to have volunteers helping the staff. So um, actually there's um, two horticulturists that look after uh, one that looks after the bonsai collection and the other, uh, she's a new hire uh, looking after the penjin collection. They each have um, one gardener that helps them and another uh, gardener part-time. So basically they have to look after the collection with um, uh, part-time help. Uh, so it is hard. You know, in Japan, they say that um, a bonsai person, an experienced bonsai person can logically uh, care for about 30 to 40 good quality bonsai. And, and that's about the upper limit. Yeah, well, I personally limit my collection here to 40 trees because I just find that anything over that, I can't keep up the quality of work. I find that trees start to either miss wire coming off or they might miss a fertilization or, you know, you might miss pests and disease because you're not keeping such a close eye on other things. So, you know, if you've got 500 trees in your personal collection, <laughs> you know, I really applaud you for being able to, you know, keep up with that kind of work because I tell you what, for me, but I mean, at the same time too with me, I, you know, obviously have this podcast and I have a YouTube channel. Um, I have a bonsai nursery. Uh, I have an online bonsai shop, uh, all those things. So a lot of my time is split up between a lot of stuff. So keeping keeping an eye on such a big collection is really something that's, you know, out of my wheelhouse at the moment. And I try to keep my trees fairly small where I can. There's always that calling out to having larger trees, but in my certain, you know, circumstances at the moment, if I need to wire a certain tree, it takes, you know, three consecutive nights to get the job done as it is. So, you know, being able to keep up with 500 trees, what what's that like? Yeah, it's a lot of work. Um, I, I, contrary, contrary to you, I do like large size bonsai, the die uh, trees. So, um, it is a problem here in Canada right now for the last month, it's averaged below minus 21 for a whole month. Uh, and so the, uh, the native trees are actually left outdoors. They're, they're frozen during most of the winter, protected, uh, you know, in an overwintering, uh, it's not a box, it's they're under the tables and covered with uh, two layers of plastic weighted down with cement blocks. Um, but all the trees that I need to prune and wire are kept in my studio during the winter. So that's probably about 200 trees. So that's the most that I can handle uh, during the winter season. And they'll be repotted uh, within the next month, I'd say. Um, yeah, and when I get started, it, it is a lot of work. I do have helpers that come um, and do help, but I never get everything done. I used to, um, I used to worry about that. I used to, it, it would bother me. It would, I would become stressed if a tree really needed repotting and I couldn't get around to it. But now I'm retired and I guess I'm getting older too. So I've come to accept it and say, well, if it's not done today, it'll be done next week or maybe next year. 
and have learned to accept reality and live with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I find every year I try to organize myself properly, you know, as we're moving through the winter months, it's okay, what trees need repotting? What trees need new pots? You know, can I source these pots and, you know, make sure everything's here by the end of winter and it never happens. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know, bonsai people are funny people. Um, You know, we do it for the love of nature, but we're also invertebrate collectors we we want to acquire um and that's our downfall you're you show enormous discipline being able to uh, really limit yourself to 40 trees um you know almost all of my students or clients they keep saying oh i i absolutely need a flowering hawthorn or i i really need a stewartia or I can't live without a trident maple. Um, so uh, people, you know, are always lusting. They want more and more and more. <laughs> That's the problem with bonsai people. I, th- I think our, our environment here too kind of keeps us under wraps with, you know, having so many species as well because, you know, where we are here in Australia, there's certain things like I would absolutely love a white pine, but it's just not possible to keep it here because in in our winter time we don't at least in the area i live anyway there are other places at a higher elevation that get colder but where i am we don't go below below five degrees celsius in winter so really for us keeping deciduous trees is a challenge because they don't really have a true dormancy and you know year after year they they tend to get a bit weaker and you know also something like a white pine it's hard for me to keep something like a white pine because we don't have that 60 days of you know at least below zero to make it kind of happy but you know further down to you know minus five or whatever that the tree would probably prefer so i mean is that is that the same kind of thing that you guys get there in canada because you are in the opposite boat you guys get super cold so i imagine that keeping any kind of tropical is a challenge tropical tree is a challenge there um you know is there is there any trees or species that you would like to have but your environment just limits you ah well you know i think the problem with most bonsai people is you know the old expression the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence so you know, here in Canada, we have wonderful larches that survive to minus 60 to minus 70 uh, Celsius. And uh, they're, they're probably the iconic, uh, you know, North American bonsai or actually, you know, Canadian bonsai. Um, and we do have native apple trees and firs and uh, spruces. Um the deciduous trees are more difficult because many of our uh, native trees have very large leaves that don't reduce down very well. Um, yes, everybody would like a Japanese uh, white pine. The Japanese black pines are not hardy in our climate. Um, but, you know, and we're not allowed to import trees from Japan here in Canada. The the uh, phytosanitary laws are very, very strict. 
Um, so we have to make do with what we have, um, which is a blessing in disguise because then we're uh, more bonsai people here in Quebec are forced to use native species uh, to go and collect in the wild or to go to local nurseries um, and find uh, trees that are hardy in our climate and grow those as bonsai. So um, really, you know, it's nice to want a ficus, but indoor trees here are basically a pain in the ass with, um, you know, uh, indoor lighting and extra, uh, we have to have misting systems or a humidifier to um, have more humidity in, in, the, in the place where we're growing them. And it's just a lot of work. So I, I tried to discourage people from growing non-native bonsai. Yeah, it's, it's really smart to, you know, keep those trees that are really suited to your environment. You know, like you were saying, black pine, they're not quite so cold hardy, but here in Australia, they thrive because they're, they're in that, that, you know, coastal environment that they, they just love so much and that they're, they're used to back in their, you know, their native land. But yes. So, something else uh, I just want to quickly go back um, a little bit before we, you know, get too far in front. Um, so back when, when you first started at the Botanical Collection, kind of kind of a two-part question that I had was, one, how has bonsai grown in Canada over the years, you know, both in, you know, knowledge and, um, you know, just the quality of the trees, but also you know, the enthusiasm of the people and how many people are now into bonsai compared to when the, when the collection first began? Well, don't forget, Canada is a huge country. It stretches over 6,000 kilometers. And uh, the bonsai we grow in eastern Canada or the bonsai people um, are really uh, not in communication with bonsai people in Western Canada and British Columbia, for example, they have a completely different climate. And um, it's actually, you know, it would probably be about a four day, five day car trip to get there. So there's not much contact. Um, we're, because most major Canadian cities hug the US border, um, we're closer uh, to our American counterparts to, uh, Bill Valavanis in Rochester, to uh, the Mid-Atlantic Bonsai Societies that are clustered around Connecticut and New Jersey and New York City and Pennsylvania. So we have more to do with them than other Canadian clubs, actually. Um, we grow sometimes similar trees, um, basically similar environments. Um, so yes, we, we do try to keep in touch with other Canadian clubs, but, um, it's just the, the logistics are just too far. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> something else that I wanted to ask you, which is, um, kind of intriguing. I can see it right there behind you is you have an extensive book collection, which is no doubt being built up, you know, over the years and, I know that you've even got the first French copy of Bonsai Techniques 1 that came off the, the press that was given to you by John Narker himself. 
what what are some of the better books that you would recommend to people especially those ones that have stood the test of time because you know as we know bonsai techniques and knowledge evolves over the years and the books that were written in the early days don't evolve with that with that knowledge going forward so what what are some of the better books that you've found because obviously you've read quite a few yes well the english books uh of course you know john Nakas two volumes techniques one and two are almost you know the go-to references um Lynn Perry Allstadt wrote a book called Bonsai Trees and Shrubs, The Techniques of uh, Keiji Murata um, that I've always treasured. I knew her well. Uh, she had actually, in the 50s, uh, after, uh, after the Second World War, uh, she had a brother stationed as a GI in Japan, the occupying forces, and um, traveled to Omiya every day and um, interviewed Murata-san and wrote down his um, care techniques for each species of tree. And um, I, I enjoy that book very much. Um, I enjoy Kimura's um, three volumes. They're, they're not really books. They're like very thick magazines. But I used them so extensively, the bindings were coming apart. So I had them rebound and, um, and, and, and bound with a hard cover so that... Um, I won't lose them because I treasure them greatly. I also, um, oh, you know, major works like Saburo Kato's Beauty of Bonsai, the Oguchi uh, book I enjoy very much. Uh, more for the pictures, uh, the you know, the, the pictures of their bonsai than for, uh, you know, bonsai information. Most bonsai books are redundant, almost, um, you know, many of the early books plagiarized uh, or later books plagiarized the early books. So aside from uh, Yoshimura's book and Murata's book, um, maybe the four seasons of bonsai, um, there's not that many books that influence me anymore. I'd rather look at, um, you know, the mustard seed garden of painting to get tips on uh, bonsai design. Um, I think you know, you have to go further than just looking at bonsai books. Uh, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I mean, one thing that I have been interested in doing myself is actually starting to collect the um, Coco for 10 exhibition books, you know, from the, yes. from the early days up to now, just to study, you know, how certain styles have evolved over the years and what was, what was kind of considered top quality, you know, in the 70s compared to, you know, in the 80s or 90s, you know, the mid-2000s, whatever it may be, because, you know, bonsai is an ever-expanding, you know, art. And even these days, um, you know, what we what we consider quality bonsai now, you know, there, there's a lot of people out there that are pushing back on the Japanese aesthetic of bonsai and, you know, trying to move forward with in newer aesthetics. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are, really i guess you could say pushing back on the quote-unquote rules of bonsai as as they put them um you know the way the way that i see them not really rules but guidelines of how the japanese used to used to style bonsai um but i think that's where those books are really interesting because they paint a picture of 
of bonsai history and even if the even if the information like you said has now become redundant which you know like i said in the beginning it's hard to find a a bonsai book because that information over the time has kind of changed and the books don't change with it and as we move into the new you know the new era books are no longer popular so the newer information we now find on the internet and at clubs and you know all these other alternate places that we may seek out information but I guess that kind of leads me to the next question that I wanted to ask you is how do you feel about the current age of bonsai with the internet do you find that it makes good information more accessible or do you find that it makes bad information more accessible uh both um unfortunately um you can find a lot of terrible information over the internet because there are so many people that are self-professed bonsai experts, uh, bonsai masters that are spewing out all sorts of uh, ridiculous information. Uh, so you have to be very careful to pick and choose, uh, you know, the the bonsai experts that um, that you're going to to learn from. Here in North America. Um, you know, there are some excellent bonsai teachers. There's Ryan Neal, who did a six-year apprenticeship with um, Kimura, the Bjorn, uh, Bjorn, Bjorn's Bjorn, Bjorn Holm. Uh, yeah. Bjorn, Bjorn Holm, sorry. Uh, Bjorn is teaching also. And I highly recommend those to my students if they want to learn um, with, those, with those teachers. Uh, there are other good teachers that maybe... Um, you know, we, we invite them to uh, uh, do Zoom meetings for our club uh, in North America. You know, there's some Californians. Uh, more and more, we're going towards the more specialized experts now. We're asking for Zooms on uh, grafting and for, you know, uh, wood carving, you know, dead wood or... Uh, referring to experts that um, just on a specific topic like Shohin. Um, so more and more, um, the topics are becoming specialized. Um, I think that's, that's an interesting trend. But I do think uh, the young people, um, especially my son's age in their 20s and 30s, and here in Montreal, the Bonsai Club is very large. We have over 520 members in our local club. And many of them are, uh, you know, we, the club offers uh, levels of teaching. We have level one, level two, level three. And then there's bonsai schools uh, here in Montreal. And there's, uh, they're called stage, where you do, a, you work on a specific species of tree over three or four years with uh, an expert. So uh, bonsai teaching has become highly evolved also. And that's what young people are asking for. They, they're very impatient. They want the information immediately. They want to do more workshops and they want to sign up for them uh, by PayPal. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very different world than what it was 
even 10 years ago, much less 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, and bonsai is one of those things where instant gratitude doesn't really exist. I mean, you see it time and time again when, you know, people bring a tree to a workshop or something and you sit down with them to work on the tree and in their head they feel like they're going to go home with this bonsai that they see without in the magazine but what they end up going home with is a bonsai that's had all these <laughs> it's had all these branches with incorrect taper cut off them and you know you've done all this structural work to the tree and it looks you know just cut up and beaten and bruised and they're like what's this and it's like this is bonsai this is you know, you, you got to get that base structure of the tree before we begin all the, the finessing and, the, you know, everything it's, else. It's true that uh, we live in an age of instant gratification. People do want results now. Um, but I think you have to educate them. You have to make them realize that bonsai is not about the finished product, but it's more about the process of getting there. And um, in order to not lose members in your bonsai society, in order to, uh, to ensure that people will keep on doing bonsai, not abandon it after a few months or a year, you ha do have to, um, they have to have a point of reference. They have to have a nursery or a bonsai guru that they can go to um and learn from and classes where you know here in montreal once they take level one they have to take two more workshops and wait six months in order to apply to uh to level two and then the same thing between level two and level three so there's always one more level to attain and um i think that's the new trend to be to keep people um, involved in bonsai are bonsai schools and bonsai uh, classes and the internet. So it's a whole new world of bonsai out there from when I was a, a youngster. It's very different. Yeah, and, and it's interesting too, all the different mindsets that you run into in bonsai because it was only yesterday I, um, I created a meme to share on Facebook that I thought showed a really a really bad downfall in beginner bonsai and basically it was just a picture of a kid walking up a set of stairs but rather yes. than walking up step by step he had one foot on the bottom and he was stretching one of his feet all the way up about four or five steps up skipping a whole right. bunch of steps and on all the little steps in between on the first step i i had you know acquiring young material and then on the last step that he had his foot on i had putting the tree in a bonsai pot and then in the middle, all the stuff that he had skipped was learning proper techniques, learning proper watering, um, you know, developing the tree, structural wiring, all that kind of stuff. And it kind of just showed, you know, as a beginner, you need to realize that there's a journey from acquiring material to getting it into a bonsai pot. And it's a long journey. There's years in between getting the tree and putting it in a bonsai pot. And the response to that image was really amazing because there was lots of people that wrote it took me 20 years to learn that or the opposite end of the spectrum was people saying there's no rules in bonsai don't put your rules on me <laughs> kind of thing so it, it, it's interesting to 
to see everybody's different mindset in bonsai and how they think about it the the difference between those who are who are in the deep end and really you know getting into like soil science and learning fertilizers properly and the the nuances of of watering just watering a bonsai tree um and then those that really just want to keep a little bonsai tree you know as a I don't know, uh, an ornament, I guess. Uh, those are usually the ones that end up inside and then in the, the rubbish bin a few weeks later. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I I tell all my new students that uh, bonsai is 90% horticulture um, and they have to master um, how to grow trees, the f- physiology of trees first um, because... It serves no purpose to just create a bonsai or learn the artistic side and see it die within a few weeks or months. Uh, so you do really have to be able to become a good horticulturist before being a bonsai artist. Um, I think the art, you know, even even as a bonsai expert, I'd say about eighty percent of my time involves pruning, wiring, um, but mostly watering, uh, fertilizing, um, you know, uh, spraying pesticides and fungicides, overwintering, cleaning, just cleaning, um, you know, it takes, takes hours. So I think most of the, most of the work in bonsai is just, um, sheer drudgery, uh, the only the interesting part is the tr- transforming the trees into bonsai, um, which you know is very brief actually. Uh, so you know you have to be frank with people and tell them that um, it's not all you know it's not a bed of roses. That bonsai is a lot of work. It requires a lot of energy, a lot of discipline and um, a lot of time and a lot of people are just not serious enough in bonsai yeah well i mean that's the thing um you know i think a lot of people when they come to my nursery here and they start asking questions they end up going home with a headache because you know you, you end up getting into all these things you know you they say oh when should i prune a tree and how should i prune it and that and then you know you ask them have you ever heard of the hormone oxen and they, oh, no, what's that? It's like, oh, here we go. Okay, so if we want to, you know, and then you got to explain to them, you know, how we need imbalances in hormones to create certain things. And, you know, you kind of need to explain that part of designing a bonsai tree is putting wire on it and moving branches. But a lot of designing a bonsai tree is learning how to balance hormones and learning how to apply fertilizer at the proper rates with the proper ratios of certain things you know you wouldn't fertilize a deciduous tree at the start of spring the same way that you would maybe fertilize a you know a conifer that you were growing on and you know you got to learn all that kind of stuff to to get results and you know different size pots and um you know different mixes of soil which is you know always interesting to see you know the conversations on on the soils you know that that people use um what what kind of soils do you have access to where you are? Well, up until maybe about two or three years ago, 
we didn't have access to any uh, Japanese growing mediums. We didn't have access to Akadama, to Kanuma, to uh, Kiryu-san, to uh, even pumice uh, had to be imported from California, Northern California. So we actually grew our bonsai in um, artificial mediums. It was um, usually about one, th for deciduous trees, one third pine bark, uh, one third was actually uh, gravel or or pumice. Actually, our society started importing um, uh, a product called trabeside, which is actually a volcanic pumice from Montpellier in southern France. And the other third was basically a bit of turface and and perlite, uh, something like that. But in the last two or three years, there's uh, somebody has uh, succeeded in importing Akadama. So now we're starting to use Akadama with uh, anywhere from 10 to 30% of pumice mixed in with it for most of our deciduous trees. Obviously, conifers, uh, we add more, um, you know, it has to be a faster draining soil. So we'll add um, some black volcanic soil or some more, um, you know, granite to it. Um, but everybody has their own soil recipe according to how often they, they can water their trees. So there's no, you know, there's no recipe. It's, it's, it's according, each person uh, goes by, by what they have, what they can get, and how often they can water their trees every day. Yeah, well, that, that's how we teach soil mixes here at bonsai M. we kind of have a a chart that has a bunch of things listed on it you know in terms of you know how hot do your summers get um you know how much wind do you have in your area is it coastal or is it more inland um do you have a arid heat or a humid heat um how often are you around to water what's the sun exposure like all that kind of stuff and we kind of determine you know what a mix would look like based on that and then also there's the goals of the tree um, in terms of fertilization. Do we need more, you know, nutrient retention? Do we need more moisture retention, less moisture retention? And, you know, as you know, with the, the species, you know, some trees really love to just be drowned while others are afraid of water almost, um, you know. So all, all of those different things, like you, we're the same as you here in Australia, the the Akadamas and the Pumices and the Kiryu and the Kanuma and all that kind of stuff, they're, they're all fairly new to us um, in using them here. And even in my garden alone, I've got some of our Australian natives and obviously for only in the last three or four years since we've had these mediums, have those trees ever been introduced to them. So, you know, I've got the same species in different mixes. I've got some that are in 100% Akadama. Um, I've got some that are in Akadama um, Kiryu mixes. I've got some that are in um, Akadama and Pumice. And, you know, just to see how all those trees react differently, um, you know, in the same environment, in the same conditions. And, you know, we're quite early on because, you know, we've seen the results that those soil mediums get in Japan, but for those for those people using those mediums outside of Japan, you're probably going to get different results because the environment's much, much different. So for you yourself, have you seen much difference in your trees 
moving over to those mediums? Yeah. Well, here you have to watch out using Akadama because Akadama is a, a very soft clay, even if we use the, the double line Akadama. Um, in winter, because of the, um, we have so many, such cold and the frosts that it tends to sort of uh, disintegrate in a way. Uh, and, you know, after two years, it just turns to, to mud. So the trees have to be repotted more often. And we do have to use more, um, more gravel or pumice in our mixtures to keep them breathing. Um, but, you know, I hate to overcomplicate um, life. Uh, you know, if you, if you impose too many rules about, about potting soils and about fertilizer, um, you discourage many people. So I try to give them a very basic recipe when they're starting off, encourage them to use organic fertilizers, teach them how to make fertilizer cakes on their own or to buy some and uh, try to keep it as simple as possible. Um, you know, if people become bonsai started off as a, a meditative art and it's meant to de-stress people, not to cause more stress. And I, I try to encourage people to, to take pleasure, to take joy in, um, in pruning their bonsai and wiring their bonsai. I, I'm strict. I try to teach them proper wiring techniques and encourage them not to cross wires or to, um, have the wires going in the proper di in the direction you want to bend the tree. But on the other hand, um, you know, I don't want to, again, stress them. So, uh, you know, I think it's better to be persuasive than demanding. And I, I want to make it an enjoyable experience for everyone. And that's the way bonsai should be. Yeah. I think it was funny, I seen a YouTube video the other day um, that Robert Pressler was in and he had mentioned that um, the way he explains the work of bonsai to people is it's more work than a goldfish but less work than a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, probably. That's true. <laughs> I had three children and went through it so I know how much work it is. Um, so what... For you personally, uh, what what are some of the more favorite species that, that you like to work on? Obviously, you know, the Japanese have an expression. Uh, when you're young, you like uh, flowering and fruiting species and deciduous species, zoki. And as, as you age, as you grow old, we tend to go towards the more austere species, to pines. And oddly enough, um, that has occurred with me. Uh, when I was young, I had a tremendous amount of flowering and fruiting bonsai apple trees and uh, cherries and quinces. Um, now, as I'm getting older, um, I'm growing a lot more uh, coniferous species, especially our native larch. Uh, for many years, I went to the far north. It was a 20-hour road trip to get to the tundra in the north to go collecting larch 
uh, growing in, in peat bogs. Now I'm getting, I have artificial knees. It's, it's almost impossible for me to um, go roaming around the tundra collecting those trees. But um, also I'm, I'm at the stage in my life where I'm not trying to grow the collection. I'm trying to um, probably de deacquisition some trees probably you know slow down a bit and enjoy what i have yeah so you're trying to you know, trying to curate your own collection somewhat um you know keep those higher quality trees and spend spend more time on them just re refining them and getting them to the best that they possibly can be yes yeah, so we're pines thoyas uh camisipris junipers used to be easy to grow but there's more and more um fungal diseases that are hitting our junipers here in north america we've got phomopsis we've got cabotina twig blight um and it keeps recurring every year so i'm a bit off of those ones um but i do have an extensive collection of japanese maples and some nice tridents too yeah yeah, it's hard for us to keep Japanese maples here in Australia. They just, they do not like the environment whatsoever. So, you know, I, I've pretty much given up on the hopes and dreams of having a, a nice Japanese maple um, because, yeah, as I said, they, they, they tend to get weaker and weaker each season um, in my environment alone anyway. Um, Australia is kind of really vast and from state to state and even from town to town in some instances the environment can change you know almost drastically um you know like you were saying with canada it's a four or five day car trip across the across the land and it's the same here in australia if we wanted to go from the east coast to the west coast here it's six or seven days i think in a, in a car um and then if you do take a tree into Western Australia, you can't get it. Well, actually, you won't get it in. If you bring a tree out of Western Australia, you won't get it back in. Um, so, oh, really? So we're, we're like you, where our, our quarantine um, rules are really strict. We can't bring in trees from America or Japan or wherever it may be. And in some instances, we can't move them between states here in Australia. It's, um, it's pretty crazy. Oh, really? Well, here we have one uniform climate. It's called snow and cold, uh, basically, <laughs> aside from British Columbia. So our winter is almost basically seven months a year. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not that bad because in winter, well, you see my extensive uh, bonsai collection. Um, you can sort of do a bit of cocooning, uh, curl up, read bonsai books, uh, I have a heated studio so I can go out and work on my trees. But a lot of people, um, you know, put their trees away for, for the winter and um, don't see them for that whole time. So uh, we don't have that many micro environments aside from British Columbia, where it's mild. It's almost the same climate as Japan, but that's so far away here. Here, it's really a, a temperate climate, but cold winters yeah so obviously we, we touched on it a little bit earlier um you've now got a youtube channel um thanks to your son and yes. obviously your instagram page as well so you're starting to 
to get out there a little bit and from what I've seen you're, you're finding a fan base very quickly obviously because of the quality of the trees that you do show um, on your YouTube channel and on your Instagram that's going to grow you a fan base pretty quickly because obviously you want to follow those who can you know show the results of what they're talking about but how, how has the, the YouTube and social media journey been for you so far? I'm having trouble adjusting. It's, there's an expression that it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. And um, fortunately, I have a son who's very media savvy. And when I'm working on trees, he'll come up to me in my studio and say, Dad, I need you to do a 30-second bit for TikTok. Or I need you to do this for Instagram or for YouTube or Facebook. And um, sometimes I have to start over five or six times because um, I'm just not as um, media savvy as he is. Um, but then again, you know, I'm happy that finally that, you know, what I'm doing interests some people and I'm, you know, I'm not a media expert. I'm a bonsai expert. All I want to do is for people to see me working on trees so they can learn a bit. Um, I, I'm glad that all of these media are, are working out. Um, I didn't even know what TikTok was. And my son will come up to me and say, you have 350,000 followers or you had 10.5 million people look at this Metasequoia forest or something. And I'll say, well, that's nice. He's excited about it. He's really over the moon. And I'll say, well, that's nice. And I think he's disappointed in me that I don't, um, I don't get too excited about it. I'm old school. Um, I enjoy it because it, it makes bonsai more accessible to everyone. But aside from that, it does, I don't let it go to my head. Yeah, well, I think if you think about it, you know, back in the early days of bonsai to reach that many people through a media outlet you would have had to have been on some you know big news show or in a big magazine or something but these days you can pick up a a phone turn the camera on and reach you know 10 million people and that i mean it it's fantastic for everyone involved in the art because the more people that are reached the more people that get involved in the art and the more people that get involved in the art, the more the industry grows as a whole. There's more growing operations that pop up. There's more bonsai shops that are importing tools in from Japan and supplies to use because, I mean, if you think back to, you know, you said that when you first started bonsai that you bought some tools from Japan to yes. now, and it'd be much easier now for you to buy tools than it would have been, you know, back in the early days. So everything accumulates and is fantastic for the art. Yes, but that's caused a big problem. Not only has the a number of people um, increased that are interested in bonsai, but also because of the pandemic, people were looking for something to do. So all of a sudden there's this huge boom in bonsai interest people wanting to do bonsai but it's created a penury of uh, bonsai supplies almost all the distributors of bonsai tools bonsai wire bonsai soil 
here in uh, North America are completely out. And of course, because of the the shipping problems, the trouble getting containers, um, people are people don't have the basic necessities any longer to be able to create bonsai. And also because of the pandemic and because of the demand, the supply of bonsai has gone down and the prices have have mushroomed. Now I think bonsai are selling for two or three times the price they were before the pandemic. Yeah, well, um, I know that the tools and stuff that we we import here. So we um, we mainly sell Kikua tools in our shop here. Um, yes, and obviously we I would say probably about ninety percent of the stuff that we keep in our shop we import from Japan. Um, yes. and just the pandemic alone has put tremendous price increases on everything because even even the shipping so you know before the pandemic you could easily bring stuff in using japan post which is you know basically their big network that 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 they have there in japan but now because of the pandemic that's completely basically shut off to supplying the world because they don't have those um, commercial flights that they can put the parcels on so now we're relying on companies like dhl but dhl uh one they're charging massive surcharges on jet fuel which yes. I- which increases every month and they they literally put because of the emergency situation so i don't know if there's a problem getting jet fuel or whatever it is because of the pandemic and then two they're I think we're paying about $3.30 per kilo of um, freight extra just because of the pandemic. Um, nothing has actually changed. It's just an extra charge that, you know, they, they can make a bit of extra money on. So everything, I'm hoping that once the pandemic ends, that's all going to come back down again. Um, I'm I'm hoping that it it doesn't stick because once people get power, it's hard to make them relinquish that power. <laughs> I think it's your your it's wishful thinking on your part. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm hoping I'm hoping we see that drop. Um, but I don't know if you can remember or not. But do you remember what those tools were that you first bought from Japan? Do you remember if they were a brand uh, at all? Yes, or? it was. At the time, it was Masakuni tools, and I've pretty well stayed loyal to Masakuni. I still use Masakuni tools, and I still have some Masakuni tools from that time. Um, because uh, the, uh, I can pull out the book and show it to you, um, and even the ad in the book. And um, he, uh, at the time, Murata was associated with... Um, with Mr. Masakuni, Masakuni the first, and had an ad for Masakuni tools. And it took me almost a year to get them. I had to order them and then send a money order and wait for them to arrive. And that they were shipped by, you know, by boat. So it did take a long time, but it was worth waiting for. Um, at the time, there were no bonsai pots either. So I actually would drill holes inside of, you know, uh, uh, clay saucers and things like that. Uh, it was very difficult when I first started off in bonsai. Now everything seems available overnight. But um, a long time ago, it was um, 
it was quite a different um, quite a different dynamic to uh, be able to procure uh, bonsai tools, wire. Um, I'd use old um, electrical copper wire, strip the plastic from the outside uh, to wire my trees. I'd have to kneel it myself. Um, now all of that is, you know, is so easy to, to obtain. Uh, it's, it's a different world out there. Yeah, and it's funny you say that too because you're saying that you had to pay by money order and get your tools sent over here by boat and it, it, it took you know a, a lot of time for you to get those tools and these days if if people don't receive their tools within the week they're sending you an email and complaining and where's my tools and <laughs> well i guess i lived in the dark ages because um at that time we expected things to take longer maybe the waiting for it increased the pleasure when it did arrive um so yeah that was the way then yeah yeah well, be, before we go here, um, do you just want to let people know where they can find David Easterbrook, um, Instagram, YouTube, all that kind of stuff? Do you know what platforms you're currently engaged in? Yes, um, David Easterbrook on, uh, they can subs subscribe to my YouTube channel. Um, also, I'm on Instagram, um, I'm on Facebook and on TikTok. So just... Um, just put in David Easterbrook. There's no E at the end of Easterbrook and you'll find me. And I, I'll be doing more demonstrations uh, in the coming weeks, uh, becoming a bit more active with, um, and there'll be more repottings also coming up. So there'll be a lot, a lot more YouTubes going on. So I, if, if you enjoy it, just uh, tune in every once in a while and see what I'm doing. Try to keep up with me. I, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy, um, I, I taught for the last 40 years at our School of Horticulture at the Botanical Gardens. I've taught classes for the Bonsai Society in Montreal for throughout my whole career. So I enjoy teaching. I enjoy spreading the word of bonsai. And um, I hope other people will get some enjoyment from um, all of my, you know, all of the media that I'm on now. Yeah, so well, thank you for publicizing me. I uh, I think it's great. It was great talking to you, Joshua. Yeah, um, and you know, as I said when I reached out to you, we, we created this podcast to you know give other artists a platform to to talk about their you know their journeys, their techniques, their thoughts. Um, just an open platform for for conversation. Um, so, I mean, it's been a fantastic time having you on here, and I do recommend people go and check out your social media channels and subscribe to your YouTube. Um, I know I watch all the videos that, that come out as they come out. So, Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm thankful that they're there. Thank you. But, um, thank you. Yeah, just once again, thank you for coming on here today and speaking with us. Well, it's been great talking to somebody from halfway around the world. Um, it's it's amazing it's almost incomprehensible to me uh as you say that i that we can reach so many people and throughout the world it's a whole new world out there an exciting new world and thank you so much for um for getting in touch with me and making this all happen thank you joshua not a problem at all thank you